0: Chapter Three of Mary Barton by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Three John Barton's Great Trouble, read by Wendy in Utah. But when the morn came dim and sad, and chill with early showers, her quiet eyelids closed, she had. "'Another morn than ours. Hood. "'In the middle of that same night, "'a neighbor of the Bartons was roused from her sound, "'well-earned sleep by a knocking, "'which had at first made part of her dream. "'But starting up, as soon as she became convinced of its reality, "'she opened the window and asked who was there. "'Me, John Barton,' answered he, "'in a voice tremulous with agitation. "'My missus is in labor, and for the love of God, "'step in while I run for the doctor.' for she's fearful bad. While the woman hastily dressed herself, leaving the window still open, she heard the cries of agony which resounded in the little court, in the stillness of the night. In less than five minutes she was standing by Mrs. Barton's bedside, relieving the terrified Mary, who went about where she was told like an automaton, her eyes tearless, her face calm though deadly pale, and uttering no sound, except when her teeth chattered for very nervousness. The cries grew worse. The doctor was very long in hearing the repeated rings at his night bell, and still longer in understanding who it was that made this sudden call upon his services, and then he begged Barton just to wait while he dressed himself, in order that no time might be lost in finding the court and house. Barton absolutely stamped with impatience outside the doctor's door before he came down, and walked so fast homewards that the medical man several times asked him to go slower. "'Is she so very bad?' asked he. "'Worse, much worser than I ever saw her before,' replied John. "'No, she was not. She was at peace. The cries were still for ever. John had no time for listening. He opened the latch-door, stayed not to light a candle for the mere ceremony of showing his companion up the stairs so well known to himself.' but in two minutes was in the room where lay the dead wife, whom he had loved with all the power of his strong heart. The doctor stumbled upstairs by firelight, and met the awestruck look of the neighbor, which at once told him the state of things. The room was still as he, with habitual tiptoe step, approached the poor frail body that nothing now could more disturb. Her daughter knelt by the bedside, her face buried in the clothes, which were almost crammed into her mouth, to keep down the choking sobs. The husband stood like one stupefied. The doctor questioned the neighbor in whispers, and then, approaching Barton, said, "'You must go downstairs. This is a great shock, but bear it like a man. Go down.' He went mechanically and sat down on the first chair. He had no hope." THE LOOK OF DEATH WAS TOO CLEAR UPON HER FACE. STILL, WHEN HE HEARD ONE OR TWO UNUSUAL NOISES, THE THOUGHT BURST ON HIM THAT IT MIGHT ONLY BE A TRANCE, A FIT, A— HE DID NOT WELL KNOW WHAT. BUT NOT DEATH, OH, NOT DEATH. AND HE WAS STARTING UP TO GO upstairs AGAIN WHEN THE DOCTOR'S HEAVY, CAUTIOUS, CREAKING FOOTSTEP WAS HEARD ON THE STAIRS. THEN HE KNEW WHAT IT REALLY WAS IN THE CHAMBER ABOVE. NOTHING COULD HAVE SAVED HER there has been some shock to the system, and so he went on, but to unheeding ears which yet retained his words to ponder on, words not for immediate use in conveying sense, but to be laid by in the storehouse of memory for a more convenient season. The doctor, seeing the state of the case, grieved for the man, and very sleepy, thought it best to go, and accordingly wished him good night, but there was no answer, so he let himself out. And Barton sat on, like a stock or a stone, so rigid, so still. He heard the sounds above, too, and knew what they meant. He heard the stiff, unseasoned drawer, in which his wife kept her clothes pulled open. He saw the neighbor come down and blunder about in search of soap and water. He knew well what she wanted and why she wanted them. But he did not speak, nor offer to help. At last she went with some kindly-meant words— a text of comfort which fell upon a deafened ear, and something about Mary, but which Mary in his bewildered state he could not tell. He tried to realize it, to think it possible, and then his mind wandered off to other days, to far different times. He thought of their courtship, of his first seeing her, an awkward, beautiful, rustic, far too shiftless for the delicate factory work to which she was apprenticed, of his first gift to her, a bead necklace which had long ago been put by in one of the deep drawers of the dresser to be kept for Mary. He wondered if it was there yet, and with a strange curiosity he got up to feel for it, for the fire by this time was well nigh out, and candle he had none. His groping hand fell on the piled-up tea-things, which at his desire she had left unwashed till morning. They were all so tired! He was reminded— of one of those daily little actions which acquire such power when they have been performed for the last time by one we love. He began to think over his wife's daily round of duties, and something in the remembrance that these would never more be done by her touched the source of tears, and he cried aloud. Poor Mary, meanwhile, had mechanically helped the neighbor in all the last attentions to the dead, and when she was kissed and spoken to soothingly, Tears stole quietly down her cheeks, but she reserved the luxury of a full burst of grief till she should be alone. She shut the chamber door softly after the neighbor was gone, and then shook the bed by which she knelt with her agony of sorrow. She repeated over and over again the same words, the same vain, unanswered address to her who was no more. Oh, mother, mother, are you really dead? Oh, mother, mother. At last she stopped, because it flashed across her mind that her violence of grief might disturb her father. All was still below. She looked on the face so changed and yet so strangely like. She bent down to kiss it. The cold, unyielding flesh struck a shudder to her heart, and hastily obeying her impulse, she grasped the candle and opened the door. Then she heard the sobs of her father's grief and quickly, quietly stealing down the steps, she knelt by him and kissed his hand. He took no notice at first, for his burst of grief would not be controlled. But when her shriller sobs, her terrified cries, which she could not repress, rose upon his ear he checked himself. "'Child, we must be all to one another. Now she is gone,' whispered he. "'Oh, father, what can I do for you? Do tell me. I'll do anything.' "'I know thou wilt.' "'Thou must not fret thyself ill. That's the first thing I ask. Thou must leave me and go to bed now, like a good girl as thou art.' "'Leave you, father? Oh, don't say so.' Ay, but thou must. Thou must go to bed, and try and sleep. Thou'lt have enough to do and to bear, poor wench, to-morrow.' Mary got up, kissed her father, and sadly went upstairs to the little closet where she slept, She thought it was of no use undressing, for that she could never, never sleep, so threw herself on her bed in her clothes, and before ten minutes had passed away the passionate grief of youth had subsided into sleep. Barton had been roused by his daughter's entrance both from his stupor and from his uncontrollable sorrow. He could think on what was to be done, could plan for the funeral, could calculate the necessity of soon returning to his work— as the extravagance of the past night would leave them short of money if he long remained away from the mill. He was in a club so that money was provided for the burial. These things settled in his own mind. He recalled the doctor's words, and bitterly thought of the shock his poor wife had so recently had in the mysterious disappearance of her cherished sister. His feelings toward Esther almost amounted to curses. It was she who had brought on all this sorrow, her giddiness, her lightness of conduct had wrought this woe. His previous thoughts about her had been tinged with wonder and pity, but now he hardened his heart against her for ever. One of the good influences over John Barton's life had departed that night. One of the ties which bound him down to the gentle humanities of the earth was loosened, and henceforward the neighbors all remarked he was a changed man. His gloom and his sternness became habitual instead of occasional. He was more obstinate, but never to marry. Between the father and the daughter there existed in full force that mysterious bond which unites those who have been loved by one who is now dead and gone. While he was harsh and silent to others, he humored Mary with tender love. She had more of her own way than is common in any rank with girls of her age. Part of this was the necessity of the case, for of course all the money went through her hands and the household arrangements were guided by her will and pleasure. But part was her father's indulgence, for he left her, with full trust in her unusual sense and spirit, to choose her own associates, and her own times for seeing them. With all this Mary had not her father's confidence in the matters which now began to occupy him heart and soul. She was aware that he had joined clubs, and become an active member of the trades union, but it was hardly likely that a girl of Mary's age, even when two or three years had elapsed since her mother's death, should care much for the differences between employers and the employed, an eternal subject for agitation in the manufacturing districts, which, however it may be lulled for a time, is sure to break forth again with fresh violence at any depression of trade, showing that in its apparent quiet the ashes had still smouldered in the breasts of a few. Among these few was John Barton, at all times, it is a bewildering thing to the poor weaver to see his employer removing from house to house, each one grander than the last, till he ends in building one more magnificent than all, or withdraws his money from the concern, or sells his mill to buy an estate in the country, while all the time the weaver, who thinks he and his fellows are the real makers of this wealth, is struggling on for bread for his children, through the vicissitudes of lowered wages, short hours fewer hands employed, etc., and when he knows trade is bad, and could understand at least partially that there are not buyers enough in the market to purchase the goods already made, and consequently that there is no demand for more, when he would bear and endure much without complaining, could he also see that his employers were bearing their share, he is, I say, bewildered, and, to use his own word, aggravated, to see that all goes on just as usual with the mill-owners." large houses are still occupied, while spinners' and weavers' cottages stand empty because the families that once filled them are obliged to live in rooms or cellars. Carriages still roll along the streets, concerts are still crowded by subscribers, and the shops for expensive luxuries still find daily customers while the workman loiters away his unemployed time in watching these things and thinking of the pale, uncomplaining wife at home." and the wailing children asking in vain for enough of food, of the sinking health, of the dying life of those near and dear to him. The contrast is too great. Why should he alone suffer from bad times? I know that this is not really the case, and I know what is the truth in such matters. But what I wish to impress is what the workman feels and thinks. True that with childlike improvidence good times will often dissipate his grumbling— and make him forget all prudence and foresight but there are earnest men among these people men who have endured wrongs without complaining without ever forgetting or forgiving those whom they believe have caused all this woe among these was john barton his parents had suffered his mother had died from absolute want of the necessaries of life he himself was a good steady workman and as such pretty certain of steady employment but he spent all he got with the confidence—you may also call it in providence—of one who was willing and believed himself able to supply all his wants by his own exertions. And when his master suddenly failed, and all hands in the mill were turned back one Tuesday morning, with the news that Mr. Hunter had stopped, Barton had only a few shillings to rely on, but he had good heart of being employed at some other mill, and accordingly, before returning home he spent some hours in going from factory to factory asking for work. But at every mill was some sign of depression of trade. Some were working short hours, some were turning off hands, and for weeks Barton was out of work, living on credit. It was during this time that his little son, the apple of his eye, The cynosure of all his strong power of love fell ill of the scarlet fever. They dragged him through the crisis, but his life hung on a gossamer thread. Everything, the doctor said, depended on good nourishment, on generous living, to keep up the little fellow's strength in the prostration in which the fever had left him. Mocking words! When the commonest food in the house would not furnish one little meal! Barton tried credit. But it was worn out at the little provision shops, which were now suffering in their turn. He thought it would be no sin to steal, and would have stolen, but he could not get the opportunity in the few days the child lingered. Hungry himself, almost to an animal pitch of ravenousness, but with the bodily pain swallowed up in anxiety for his little sinking lad, he stood at one of the shop windows where all edible luxuries are displayed haunches of venison, Stilton cheeses moulds of jelly, all appetizing sights to the common passer-by. And out of this shop came Mrs. Hunter. She crossed to her carriage, followed by the shopman loaded with purchases for a party. The door was quickly slammed to, and she drove away. And Barton returned home with a bitter spirit of wrath in his heart to see his only boy, a corpse. You can fancy now the hordes of vengeance in his heart against the employers for there are never wanting those who either in speech or in print find it in their interest to cherish such feelings in the working classes, who know how and when to rouse the dangerous power at their command, and who use their knowledge with unrelenting purpose to either party. So while Mary took her own way, growing more spirited every day, and growing in her beauty too, her father was chairman at many a trades union meeting, a friend of delegates, and ambitious of being a delegate himself, a chartist, and ready to do anything for his order. But now times were good, and all these feelings were theoretical, not practical. His most practical thought was getting Mary apprenticed to a dressmaker, for he had never left off disliking a factory life for a girl, on more accounts than one. Mary must do something. The factories being, as I said, out of the question, there were two things open, going out to service, and the dressmaking business. And against the first of these Mary set herself with all the force of her strong will. What that will might have been able to achieve had her father been against her I cannot tell. But he disliked the idea of parting with her, who was the light of his hearth, the voice of his otherwise silent home. Besides, with his ideas and feelings toward the higher classes, he considered domestic servitude as a species of slavery, a pampering of artificial wants on the one side and giving up of every right of leisure by day and quiet rest by night on the other how far his strong exaggerated feelings had any foundation in truth it is for you to judge i am afraid that mary's determination not to go to service arose from far less sensible thoughts on the subject than her father's three years of independence of action since her mother's death such a time had now elapsed had little inclined her to submit to rules as to hours and associates, to regulate her dress by a mistress's ideas of propriety, to lose the dear feminine privileges of gossiping with a merry neighbor, and working night and day to help one who was sorrowful. Besides all this, the sayings of her absent, the mysterious Aunt Esther, had an unacknowledged influence over Mary. She knew she was very pretty— The factory people, as they poured from the mills, and in their freedom told the truth, whatever it might be, to every passer-by, had early let Mary into the secret of her beauty. If their remarks had fallen on an unheeding ear, there were always young men enough, in a different rank from her own, who were willing to compliment the pretty weaver's daughter as they met her in the streets. Besides, trust a girl of sixteen for knowing it well if she is pretty. Concerning her plainness she may be ignorant." so with this consciousness she had early determined that her beauty should make her a lady the rank she coveted the more for her father's abuse the rank to which she firmly believed her lost aunt esther had arrived now while a servant must often drudge and be dirty must be known as his servant by all who visited at her master's house a dressmaker's apprentice must or so mary thought be always dressed with a certain regard to appearances must never soil her hands, need never redden, or dirty her face with hard labor. Before my telling you so truly, what folly Mary felt or thought injures her without redemption in your opinion, think what are the silly fancies of sixteen years of age in every class and under all circumstances. The end of all the thoughts of father and daughter was, as I said before, Mary was to be a dressmaker, and her ambition prompted her unwilling father to apply at all the first establishments—' to know on what terms of painstaking and zeal his daughter might be admitted into ever so humble a workwoman's situation. But high premiums were asked at all, poor man. He might have known that without giving up a day's work to ascertain the fact. He would have been indignant indeed, had he known that if Mary had accompanied him, the case might have been rather different, as her beauty would have made her desirable as a showwoman. Then he tried second-rate places— that all the payment of a sum of money was necessary, and money he had none. Disheartened and angry, he went home at night, declaring it was time lost, that dressmaking was at all events a troublesome business and not worth learning. Mary saw that the grapes were sour, and the next day she set out herself, as her father could not afford to lose another day's work, and before night, as yesterday's experience had considerably lowered her ideas, she had engaged herself as apprentice so called though there were no deeds or indentures to the bond to a certain miss simmons a milliner and dressmaker in a respectable little street leading off ardwick green where her business was duly announced in gold letters on a black ground enclosed in a bird's-eye maple frame and stuck in the front parlour window where the workwomen were called her young ladies And where Mary was to work for two years without any remuneration, on consideration of being taught the business, and where afterwards she was to dine and have tea, with a small quarterly salary paid quarterly because so much more genteel than by the week a very small one, divisible into a minute weekly pittance. In summer she was to be there by six, bringing her day's meals during the first two years, in winter she was not to come till after breakfast her time for returning home at night must always depend upon the quantity of work Miss Simmons had to do. And Mary was satisfied, and seeing this, her father was contented too. Although his words were grumbling and morose, but Mary knew his ways, and coaxed and planned for the future so cheerily that both went to bed with easy, if not happy, hearts. End of chapter For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org.